Hi, I'm Diane Yu. And I'm Shweta Palai. We are co-hosts of Identity Unveiled, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of Asian women in America breaking barriers. In this episode, we sat down with Pooja Jasrani, the first South Asian flight director of NASA. Her humble beginnings at NASA started with changing carpets in the control center to then becoming part of the elite, coveted circle of female flight directors at NASA. For perspective, NASA's history has only had 100 flight directors, of which 17 have been female. Pooja was a 15. She also speaks to us about the experiences she faced being a woman in an industry that is staggeringly stacked towards more men than women. Pooja gets candid about marriage, motherhood, and what the future holds after having achieved a lifetime goal of becoming a flight director of NASA at the young age of 37. If you aren't already following us, then please subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. With support from subscribers like you, we can grow sponsorships and our own trajectory towards bringing more stories of Asian women in America breaking barriers. Did you ever think that you would one day be the first South Asian female flight director at NASA? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I think I looked up to those guys so much that I didn't actually think that I could ever be that role. But no, absolutely not. That's not. And it honestly wasn't really in my career trajectory either, because I just never thought I could do it. I never thought that that would be a role for me. It was just, like I said, some these guys that I looked up to, the Gene Kranzes and the Glenn Lunnies of our Apollo era, that I just kind of awed at. I'm an inspiration. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to go down my merry own engineering path and, you know, see where I land. And somehow I landed up here. Well, and you, you were born in England and then you immigrated with your parents here to Houston. Yeah. So um, I was born and raised in England. My parents are actually were born and raised in India uh, and they moved to England shortly after they got married. My dad's an orthopedic surgeon and my mom is a trained artist. And so I sort of have the right brain, left brain combination in my family. But we moved around quite a bit when I was a kid. Uh, My dad got a lot of different fellowships in England um, and then actually decided to come to America because he was working with a guy that they wrote papers together for the Academy of Orthopedics. And he made some connections here and then decided to move to America. And that's how we kind of found our way to Houston specifically. I know my parents, when we were leaving England, they kind of were deciding between moving to Houston or moving to Hong Kong. And I kind of think about how, you know, just that one simple decision that my parents made about moving to Houston changed my entire life, right? Because I think moving to Houston and being close to NASA Johnson Space Center really kind of set me up to this trajectory. Yeah, Hong Kong versus Houston. Um, Yeah. A whole different trajectory. So how old were you when you moved here? I was in fifth grade when I moved, so I was about 10. And we moved um, downtown to the med center in Houston, lived in a little small apartment. And my dad started residency because, um, as you may know, for doctors to get their sort of accreditation in different countries, they don't actually transfer. And so my dad is accredited as a doctor in India and in England and also here. And we kind of started with my dad in residency, you know, making residency salary. And we lived in this little small apartment until we got established and and kind of continued on. You talk about your dad being a space nerd you know, and orthopedic surgeon. So what was that like? I mean, when you talk about him being a space nerd, 
what did that mean? What does that mean? What was your, your childhood well, so like? It's actually funny, right? Because a lot of the, the moon, going to the moon kind of stuff happened during my parents' generation, right? And I think my dad and my mom just in general were kind of inspired by that. My dad specifically really wanted to be an engineer. But in India, you kind of take a test similar to the SATs. And then depending on how well you do, it kind of sets where you go. And if you do really well, your entire family forces you to become a doctor. You know, if you do sort of second best, then maybe you're an engineer or a lawyer. And so my dad just ended up scoring really well on this on these tests. And his family sort of pushed him to become a doctor, though being an engineer was really what he wanted to do. So which is why like he kind of jokes about how he's an orthopedic surgeon, because it's really sort of an engineering doctor field combined in terms of what you have to do with joints. Right. But because of that, my dad just underlyingly had a joy and love for space. And so as soon as I was born, pretty much I would read space books with my dad. Uh, we would go see, you know, Johnson Space Center, go to Kennedy Space Center, watch all the space movies. I mean, growing up, I just had posters of astronauts on my walls just based on the fact that my dad loved it so much. And it kind of rubbed up on on me. Was there ever an astronaut that we actually met that was on your wall? Only one. Once there was actually an astronaut who, um, after he flew in space, decided to become a doctor. Um, and so he ended up working at Baylor College of Medicine with my dad. And so he wrote one of those, you know, where they have like the pictures and he's like, dear Pooja, you know, I, I hope you make it one day, you know, love. And so I had that on my wall growing up, but I really didn't have that much of a connection to space. You know, I didn't really know anybody that worked in the space industry. It was just sort of the love that I had on the side growing up. But, and it was always a double, double-sided coin in a way, because my mom, like I said, was an artist. And so I really sort of had this creative brain as well. I loved fashion. I loved decorating. I loved, you know, making posters and markers and Sharpies and created our t-shirts for our school, you know, in terms of design. And so when I actually decided that I wanted to do aerospace engineering, a lot of people were shocked because they really thought I would do more of the artsy type thing. I know my parents were like, well, I know that you've been into space, but like, are you really good at math and science? Like, do you have the background to be able to do this career versus oh, you're also really talented on this on the creative side, you know, do you want to do marketing or interiors or, or something like that? But I think sort of applying to college and sort of saying, you know, I'm going to do aerospace engineering. I think I can figure this out. I'm into space enough that, that I'd like to go down that trajectory. And that's sort of where I ended up going. But I think the decision could have been either way, if that makes sense. Mm. Was there any pressure from your parents, though, for like when you said, okay, I'm doing science, was that, I mean, your your dad's a doctor and was there ever any kind of pressure for you to choose uh, no. a more, yeah. Yeah, surprisingly, no. You know, I think you, we have a reputation as uh, in being a South Asian family, you know, that my parents maybe would have pressured me to become a doctor or pressured me to become an engineer. But my parents are very awesome in the fact that they were kind of laid back, right? They weren't the, they weren't the parents that were checking my report card in high school. They weren't the parents that were asking me, you know, did I sign up for physics too? Or did I do these classes that I, every other South Asian kid or, might be doing, you know? They weren't those parents. Um, I think being first generation Americans and not really knowing the process and understanding high school and AP classes and what the SATs really meant, they were kind of learning with me. And they did a really good job of just letting me take the lead, right? Letting me decide what classes I wanted to take. Do I need to take the prep course for the SATs? Yeah, sure. You know, I decided and they signed me up for it, you know? So they were really sort of allowing me to take the lead in my sort of trajectory in high school and also decide where I wanted to go to college and then 
with that decide my major. And I think once I said aerospace engineering, I think they both were happy with that anyways, but they definitely didn't push me to do that. So then you went, you decided to go to UT. And I know that was, uh, you said it wasn't easy when you started the aerospace engineering program. It was actually quite difficult. Yeah. So the aerospace program at UT, you know, they have this aerospace class. It's aerospace 101, right? Which you think, well, I, I better do well in this aerospace 101 class. Otherwise, you know, maybe this this career or job or this major isn't for me. But it's actually one of the hardest classes at UT in the engineering program. It sort of ends up being a weed out class, you know, a class that a lot of people do poorly in. And then people just, you know, they have they have low self-confidence and then can decide not to continue. I ended up meeting a group of, of women in my aerospace group. There was only three or four of us out of the class that had many, many other males. And we kind of... And how big was your class that you only had three or four people? I would say, I don't actually know the numbers. This may not be accurate, but if I were to guess, maybe around 100, 150 in our class. And then I would say there was maybe about 10 females. And then, you know, we kind of created this core group of four or five that I ended up there ended up being my latch all through college, right? Like my best friends, because we kind of would make sure we had each other's backs, you know, in all these classes. And so in that one aerospace engineering 101, you know, this one hour class my freshman year, first semester, that was super tough. We all kind of linked arms together and we're like, we're going to figure out how to get through this class. And we did, you know, all of us now have kind of made it in the trajectory of aerospace, but it's, it's kind of funny to see how we knew that this would be a challenge. And then people had kind of warned us that it was this weed out class, but it was sort of, you know, your confidence builder that you needed to do well enough in that class to be able to have a career in aerospace. And we kind of all linked arms and pushed through that class and made sure we were all helping each other succeed. And, and after that, I mean, engineering in general isn't easy, right? It, you, you end up getting more and more technical as, as the years go on. And so, it was a challenge through college. I mean, it, it was busy and I worked really hard, but I think that hard work ended up paying off. I mean, you're not only a, um, a obviously a trailblazer for many reasons, but also even when you were at a young age at, at UT, you know, there's not a lot of women to begin with in STEM, more so even Asian women. I mean, the stats are out there. So that's incredible that that you went for it, you know, coming from the background you did, you could have gone left or right. Yeah, exactly. So did you get, so while at UT, did you start interning at NASA? Like, how did you get your foot in the door? Yeah, so we used to have a career fair at UT where a lot of the, the major aerospace engineering companies would come, you know, through our engineering career fair. And I remember, you know, not really understanding NASA as a whole. So NASA, you know, is obviously the federal government that is the federal government space program. But there's a lot of subcontractors also that work for NASA that supply different engineering skills or and op skills to NASA as well. And so I specifically at the career fair just started going and talking to all these different people. And I ended up getting a um, an internship at uh, one of the subcontractors, was, which was United Space Alliance at the time. It was the biggest subcontractor of NASA that was helping uh, with the shuttle program at the time. And so I remember specifically talking to the manager that was there and he said, you know, you know, I work in mission control. Are you interested in an internship at mission control? And the answer was absolutely, you know, I would love to work in mission control. That's exactly where I want to be. And so we did an interview and I went through the different processes for the internship. And then I ended up showing up on my first day. And all I remember really hearing was that I was going to work in mission control, but I didn't really ask enough questions in terms of what I would be doing there. In my first summer that I was there, I ended up coordinating the carpet changes in mission control and actually not doing anything that was technical or engineering. It was more of an ops role in coordinating the schedule of how we would get 
the mission control upgraded. So you were an intern and you were doing carpet control? Correct. Carpet changes. Yeah. Like, so in, in mission control, since it's been around since the early fifties, we needed an upgrade and they were, they had an engineering group that was figuring out how those upgrades would happen. And I was in charge of the carpet changes. That's what my internship role was. And I remember specifically talking to him. I was like, I didn't realize this is what I would be doing. I actually want to be a flight controller. Like I want to sit in the consoles in mission control. And he was so great. And the next summer he got me a job, you know, he got me my next internship to be a flight controller in mission control. And so I think he saw my potential and he saw that I didn't quite understand what I had gotten myself into in terms of what this specific internship entailed. And he got me to my next job. And when I actually got selected as a flight director, that manager was there uh, during one of my ceremonies. And I, you know, I kind of reached back out to him and said like, thank you, right? If he hadn't saw my potential and given me that next internship, I mean, I probably wouldn't be here today. So it was all kind of luck, right? Yeah, two questions. So that brings up a great point. So, you know, on your ascent to the success that you've had, would you say what would have been helpful? Is it men that have champ- helped champion and mentor and created an opportunity, or what has helped in that? You know, from carpet internship to where we are today. I think it's really been those mentorship relationships. Not only that first one, but throughout my career, there have been people that have seen my potential or potential that I didn't even see in myself. Right. And said, you know, you should apply for this next job. This job is open. Did you hear about that? You would be great. And many times they had more confidence in me than I even had in myself. Right. Like I said earlier, it was never my aspiration to be a flight director. But these other people saw that I had the potential to do that, you know, even really early on in my career. And I kind of owe it to those folks for kind of being the whisperer that said, hey, have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought about doing this role? I think that would be good for you. Because if it wasn't for those whispers, I wouldn't be here because I wouldn't have made those selections by myself. What were those qualities as a flight director that they saw early on? I think it's really uh, my ability to bring a team together. You know, I'm a pretty outgoing personality and engineers don't always have that, right? A lot of them are very technical, but they're not necessarily team builders because they haven't had to be. But the ability to sort of get to know a team, bring a team together, be personable, have empathy, is sort of characteristics that I've always had. You know, I've, I've always really tried to get to know my coworkers. I've really tried to get to know my bosses. And I think when you get to know people at a personal level, you're able to create a better technical team as well because you know how people work, you know, what makes them tick, what makes them upset, and also what other personal things are going on in their lives at home so that when they need a break, they get the break, right? Because they're going to be better at work when they're able to do better at home. And so I think those sort of skills that I've had kind of think about that would be a good person to bring into mission control because that's the kind of team that I'm trying to run, right? I'm trying to run a very highly dynamic, highly skilled team, and I need them to perform when things hit the fan. And But in that, I need to also know them so that when things hit the fan, I know how they're going to react. I think that the most burning question here for our listeners, you know, are, are, are women that want to, that are looking to even more successful in their careers. And so the common denominator and the, the burning question is, it's highly competitive to get the flight director job. As you mentioned, you know, the stats are there, right? You're the 15th, right, uh, woman uh, to get in and more so a South Asian woman. What were the qualities you think that were able to push you past the curve of other people that were trying out and how were you able to get that? Why do you think you were chosen for that? Yeah, I think it really goes back to my sort of team building qualities, right? I mean, there are many people that are smarter than me. There are many people that are more technically competent than me. 
I don't think that that is the trait that I bring to the table, right? I think I really bring the being personable, really wanting to get to know people, the sort of like EQ skills that are really harped upon now, but really weren't harped about 20 years ago when we all started school. I think it, it was those skills that kind of brought me to the forefront. And then just being genuinely myself, right? I kind of went into this flight director interview saying, this was never really my dream. Is it cool? Absolutely. Do I want it now? You know, 100%. But it wasn't ever really my dream. And in flight control and admission control, when you're there in the middle of the night and something goes wrong, no matter how hard or how much you pretend to be someone that you're not, you know, I pretend to be the hammer kind of lady or the hand, you know, that's just not me. I'm not, a, I'm not a hammer. That's not my personality. But if I pretend to be that and then get this role based on the way that I pretended, when things actually hit the fan in the middle of the night on a Sunday over Christmas, I'm going to go innately back to who I am. Right. And so it was very important to me that when they selected me, that they selected me for who I am. Because in the end of the day, that is who I'm going to end up being in mission control as the director. And so I needed them to select me for me. And I think I kind of was able to go into that interview with that calm and saying, you know, I'm going to be me. The interview is tough. It's a, you know, it's a two round process, very competitive. But if they don't want me for me, then that's okay. So, so what was that day like when you found out that you were going to be not only a flight director, but the first South Asian female flight director at NASA? It was unreal. Because I honestly didn't expect it because it's so competitive, right? And the fact that people apply multiple times, I was shocked. I was honestly shocked. And the first thing I did was call my parents <laughs> and really my dad, right? To tell him, because he had known that I was applying. And to him, it was sort of his dream come true that his daughter was now in the space industry and now applying to be a flight director. Like what? Um, and so the first thing I did was call my parents. And my dad was just so elated that I was just so happy with that, right? And then telling my husband and, and telling you know, my daughter. I think it was, it was all of that at the same time. So what's the day in the life like for a flight director? Um, there is, there are no two days that are the same. I mean, mission control and, and ops, there's a lot of things that we're working on consistently. I mean, the whole point of the international space station is really science and furthering science so that we can live long durations in space, go to the moon, go back to, you know, go back to the moon, go, go to Mars. And so we're always doing something to further that objective, as well as stuff on the International Space Station breaks, right? It's 20, it's over 20 years old. The toilet breaks, the food system breaks, things break. And so we're constantly having to do repairs as well. And so combination of science and then repairs is really what my focus is on. When I'm in mission control, obviously I'm in charge of, of the International Space Station and what's going on on board. But the days that I'm not on console, we're really prepping for that next activity, the next vehicle docking, the next vehicle launch, the next spacewalk when the crew members are going to go outside the door, you know, repair something outside the station. It's really all that preparing and planning that I do off console versus on console when it's really this. We're talking to the crew today. This is what the crew has on their timeline. This is what we're trying to accomplish in mission control. With that being said, Pooja, tell us about Artemis that's coming up. Yeah, Artemis is a, is a really exciting project. You know, for, for our generation, really, we weren't around when the Apollo landings happened. You know, we weren't around when Neil Armstrong went to the moon. And so I think what's so exciting is the amount of buzz that's currently around NASA. You know, we've had the SpaceX launches recently that went to the International Space Station. And that kind of all ha happened in the midst of the pandemic. And I think it really gave folks something to kind of watch and look forward to last summer. 
And all of that is leading up to Artemis, right? Going back to the moon. And I think, you know, the most exciting thing that we talk about when we go back to the moon is the fact that we'll have our first woman stepping foot on the moon and the next man, right? And it's very important, even as, as an organization that we talk about it in that light, that we're going to have our first woman on the moon and the next man. And just, just thinking about how we're going to have a woman on the moon and my little five-year-old potentially, you know, whatever, you know, maybe she'll be 10 by the time this actually happens, but to be able to watch that and see that and just be inspired by that, I think, I mean, so, it's awesome. So you, let me ask you about then, you, you mentioned your daughter and your, your husband's a lawyer. I mean, in the last, you know, 14 years or 13 years of your career, you know, how did that all kind of you know, how did that, at what point did, did marriage and kids come into, into the picture in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm lucky enough actually to have married my high school sweetheart. And so we met in Sugarland, you know, in our, in our 10th grade study hall class, because we were put in alphabetical order in that class. And his last name is just Ronnie, which is what my now, and my maiden last name is Joshi. And so I sat right behind him in my study hall class in 10th grade. And we weren't allowed to talk because in study hall, you are supposed to be studying and doing your homework. And so we actually passed notes back to each other uh, and kind of got to know each other and started dating our, our junior in high school. And then we dated ever since. So he ended up going to Northwestern for undergrad um, and doing engineering there and then went to law school at UT. And um, I went to UT for, for undergrad. So we were long distance during that whole time frame. And then I kind of forced him to come back to Texas and go to UT because I had for law school because I had already gotten my internships at NASA. So I knew that this is, I was going to be in Houston. This is where I wanted to be. He kind of came back to the University of Texas at Austin for law school and then would summer at Houston law firms. And so he would come back every summer and we'd live together. And so, and then after he ended up graduating law school, we got engaged and then got married. After that, we had gotten, we ended up getting married, I think on our almost like 10 year dating anniversary. Um, so at that point, where were you in your career? I was an ADCO. So I was just that in that first flight control position. Um, kind of working my way through the ranks. It takes a lot of years to become certified as a flight controller. And so you, you're a backroom flight controller and then a frontroom flight controller. And then you have to do all the different dynamic events to kind of check all the boxes. And so that that's sort of where I was. He was very supportive with the fact that I had gotten sort of my dream job. You know, I, I got an internship at NASA. I now I'm working at NASA full time. And so he knew that in order for our sort of relationship to survive, that he would have to move back to Texas. Without, though that was not really... Um, in his hopes and dreams personally, because especially going to undergrad in Chicago um, and getting a taste of what it was like in another city. He's born in, he was born and raised in Houston. So he didn't really have a, have a, a reason to come back other than his parents and his family, of course. He was kind of wanting to go to California or New York, but, you know, the poor guy made the sacrifice to come back to law school at the University of Texas and then um, ended up getting a, a full-time job um, at Vincent and Elkins, which is a law firm in Houston, for many years uh, when he came back. And it was just understood that you, you know, your career here at NASA, you couldn't really take that anywhere else. Correct. Yeah. And we've even had these conversations now, right? Because now we've been in Houston for many years, sort of due to my, due to my career, that that's really not what his, his career trajectory path would, would necessarily take him. And he's been very accommodating in that fact and understands that I've sort of found the job that, that makes me tick and makes me happy. And he's like, I can't really take that away from you, you know, and then if we were to move somewhere else, you know, I may be happy in this other job, but you'll definitely not be happy. Right. So mm -hmm. you've always had the sort of push and pull on. Is there a time for us to ever leave Houston? 
And at this point, we're pretty sound in the decision that we're we're absolutely happy here. But I have told him that, you know, one day or absolutely more than one day, like he needs to come first as well. Right. And if there's ever a time where he finds his dream job and it just happens to be in New York, like we need to have that conversation so that that we could move. Right. Because it is a push and pull in a relationship and you have to make sure that you're catering for both parties. But but yeah, that's sort of how our relationship started. And then we ended up being in Houston. We got married. And then if you, then you're then, on this like career track, right? You're on this like yeah. trajectory, right? And then, you know, how did you decide when was right for you to have a, have a child? I think, you know, and it's always interesting. I think every woman has, has a sort of crossroads, especially nowadays where, you know, the, us as females are really pushing sort of the workforce boundary on when does it make sense to have a child? Mm-hmm. Also, I have, a, I have a clock that's ticking personally, right? That I kind of want to have a child by a certain age. And so I think there was no right time. We kind of decided there was no right time. But if we were to start trying and if we got pregnant, we would be able to deal with it. You know, and I think we had a lot of people that had a lot of infertility issues and things like that around us that we knew that it may not be a sure thing. And so for us, it was sort of like there's never going to be a right time. But we are now comfortable, say, in our finances and our lives to know that if we got pregnant tomorrow versus pregnant in six months or two years, that we'd be able to, to handle what came our way. And so I think that's sort of how we made that switch. But were there concerns that, you know, you're in a career that's primarily male dominated and you have these aspirations to one day be a flight director? You know, how did you kind of think through the concerns of introducing, of of becoming, you know, a mom? I think I was naive, to be honest. You know, I had seen other working moms have to rush off to go take their kid to soccer practice or doctor's appointment. And I honestly, yeah, to be honest, I don't think I ever understood it, right? I didn't understand the additional pressures that being a mother really plays into your work-life balance. I honestly don't think I understood it. And so I kind of went into being a mother very naively, right? Being like, we can handle it. We'll get parents that'll help or we'll get a nanny or we'll figure it out. And not really understanding the struggles that that it actually plays um, in your everyday life. And so I don't think I made that decision really eyes wide open, right? I made the decision more on the fact that my internal clock was ticking and this sounds like a right time to have a child and, and not really balancing that with my career choice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I kind of just went for it. And it wasn't until after where I really understood the struggles and, and what that would really mean to my career or what that would really mean to my work life balance. Mm-hmm. So you so, kind of went into it and, and you did it not thinking about your career. Once you did it, what, you know, what changed for you when you, I mean, obviously you still went through the trajectory. Was there ever a moment of doubt that you could continue? Absolutely. I think because I, I went in so naively and not really understanding what all is involved in really being a mother, you know, the, the burdens, the amount of work that is required. I think there were absolutely doubts, right? There've been many days where the guilt even exists today where I've been working overnights this whole week, for example, and I really haven't seen my daughter. I've seen her for an hour every afternoon before I need to go sleep again. Before my night. Right. And so I think there are always doubts. I think there are always doubts because as you know, as any working mother knows that balance and finding that balance and making sure that guilt isn't overwhelming is always there. It's always and the guilt extends to your spouse as well, right? Because your spouse is maybe now having to pull more of a load because you're working overnights, for example. And so I think that doubt is always there. But I think having the support that I had from 
my coworkers, my management at work, including my husband. Like I said, I mean, he's very supportive of the fact that we live in Houston and, and, you know, wanting me to try to do this trajectory allows me to continue, right? Kind of push through those doubts and push through those tough moments, knowing that I have that support system to help me. Mm. So let me ask you about support and, and being a woman in a fairly male dominated industry. You know, how did you find, I mean, did you find it difficult being a woman in this career? I guess is the first question. You know, I get asked this question quite a bit, I guess yeah. being a South Asian woman, especially, you know, like how, how did it feel to be the first South Asian or how did it feel to be yeah. first 15 women? Interestingly enough, I don't think I've ever really felt that. You know, and, and maybe it's to it's a testament to NASA's culture and the fact that they didn't single me out in that way, you know, sort of in this environment. You know, in terms of being a woman and being a flight controller, I never felt any different to my male counterparts. You know, I really didn't. And I feel like we've had a few, you know, sprinkling of women kind of come up through the management ranks. And I think they really looked down at the younger women and helped pull us up with them, right? I think there was a lot of support with, for the few sprinkling the women that kind of made it. And then, you know, even for me, now I'm looking down at, at other folks saying, like, let me help you. Let me pull you up, right? Let me make sure that you have a voice as well. And so I personally never really saw the effects of it. Even more recently, I mean, we mission control in general had to be re-outfitted for women's restrooms. I mean, it, obviously, you know, you watched Apollo 13, it was only males in the flight control room. And, you know, so the fact that the mission control itself had to be re-outfitted for women's restrooms was a feat in itself. But once that was done, more recently, I, I kind of joked that there was actually a line in the women's restroom, which has, has never happened before. You know, <laughs> never. Like I was the one woman going to the restroom and coming because, you know, most of the flight control team was male. But more recently, there was an actual line. And we, I was joking with the other females with me in line, being like, obviously, times are changing and for the better when there's a line at the women's restroom in mission control. And so, you know, I think with all of that, I've been really settled in the fact that I, that I have been a female, that I have been South Asian. And I don't personally notice it until somebody else brings it up to me. You know, somebody asks me that question about how do I feel being a woman or how do I feel being a, the first South Asian because really, when I walk into the room in mission control, I just feel like a flight director. So there is something I was curious about. And so, you know, you look young. And one of the things that I've gotten through my career is, did you ever face any doubt from fellow astronauts or fellow colleagues when you became flight director? Because you are, you are fairly young. Absolutely. And I don't know if it was, you know, an outwardly thing or something that they thought internally. I remember meeting, you know, some of the, the flight directors from the Apollo era and they came down for our 50th anniversary that we did it in mission control of the moon landings. And I introduced myself as a flight director and I specifically remember their looks being like this little girl, like I'm also very petite person. So I'm short, I'm petite. I um, am South Asian. I look young, you know, and I don't really fit the mold of that, you know, sharp, clean cut male at all. Like I just don't mm -hmm. fit that. And I'm never going to fit that. Right. To be honest. And so I just remember seeing their looks being like, oh, oh, like surprise, like, oh, nice to meet you. Because they just 
had no idea that I was a flight director. And we ended up doing a press conference together. And at the very end of it, they were like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. I'm so excited that you're a flight director in the office now. The tables turned after this um, interview that we all did because they really got to know me, right? And they got to know me from versus just how I looked or how I appeared to them. I also think that for a long time when I first started in this office, I really felt the need to always kind of look older or look more professional, right? To not look young or wear a t-shirt like this. I would always walk around in a suit and heels so that I could be taller and, and feel like I had more command presence just by the way that I looked and dressed. But I've, I've kind of let my guard down on that now. You know, now that I've sort of established myself in this role, been in this role for a few years and feel comfortable, it's more of like going back to like, this is Pooja, this is who I am. This is how I like to dress. I kind of like to wear dresses and be creative and wear a bright red dress. That's not really the uniform in Mission Control. You know, the uniform <laughs> is usually a black suit uh, with a button up underneath. And, and I've kind of decided that I no longer need to be that way, right? It was sort of a falsification that I was putting in my brain that I, that I felt like I needed to do that to fit in. And honestly, those things don't matter. They're all exterior. And it's more important that I'm comfortable in what I'm wearing and I'm comfortable in my own skin. And it's what I do and how I act that really defines me as a flight director and not what I wear or what I look like. Mm, so powerful. And it sounds like you've meshed your artist side and your and your science side together and in, in how you now present yourself and, and how you lead yourself with others. Yeah, I think because I think that was important to me, right? Because I think I, I for so long was trying to fit into what an engineer was supposed to be like, or what an engineer was supposed to look like, or maybe an engineer doesn't wear makeup, or maybe she doesn't care about her dangly earrings in the middle of the meeting, right? Because that's not important in engineering. That's aesthetics is not an important thing. And it's not recognized. Usually it's, if anything, it's put down that that person cares enough about looks or, or the way they're, they're dressed. But honestly, to me, it shouldn't even be part of the table conversation. You know, all of that stuff is, you know, the way that you dress is an individual expression of your artistry, in my opinion, right? I mean, I think, and clothing is almost um, art on your body. And so to me, it was important that I was able to individually express who I was. And if that is wearing that red flowy dress, then it's wearing that red flowy dress. And that shouldn't change the opinion of what I'm saying that, that, that someone has of me. Like it should be just based on face value and what I bring to the table and not necessarily based on how I dress. But it took me a long time to get there, to be honest. You know, it's probably not until the last year or two where I've felt comfortable in that and knowing that there's a time still to be extra professional and still wear that suit. Um, those suits are collecting dust. I still wear them, right? But maybe not as often as I would have in the past. Because you can still be professional and not wear a suit, in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. I've been carved into that nature based on our history of males wearing suits and that being their formal attire in the workplace. Yeah. But I think there's an expression that's outside of that. And I don't think that we have to necessarily blend into that. But my suit still gets worn. I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that it doesn't. So and maybe it's not a black or a blue one. Maybe it's, Correct. A, it's, a, yeah. it's a red one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And so, but I think the, the ability to allow individual expression is important. And I think that, you know, I, now in the role that I'm in, I serve in, as an example to others. Right. So if I were to come in with my stiff suit every day, then others would feel like they have to also wear their stiff suit every day in my room. Right. Because I'm the leader of that room. 
And so if I'm able to show some individual expression and be okay with that, kind of pushing those boundaries a little bit, I feel like that allows my team to also feel that same way, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, she's wearing that red suit or red dress. And so I can as well. Um, And understand that those things are exterior and not really core to what we're actually doing, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you think about your, the way that you've navigated your career and in an industry where it is, you know, unique to see a woman in your position, in your role. So, and it's not, you know, aeronautics and aviation is not the only industry where we have these you know, male dominated, more males than females. Let's just put it that sure. way. So, you know, knowing what you know, you know, what advice would you have for other women or maybe just other people who, who are kind of managing through that piece in their career? where they aren't the majority? I think a lot of it is really one, just being sort of comfortable with who you are, right? And knowing that the fact that you're a male or a female does not define what you bring to the table, right? And a lot of times in these industries, it's it's your brain, it's your value, it's your thought process, it's your negotiation skills or your analytical tactics that are really what bring your value to the table. There's a lot of things to be said about what women bring to the table that are different than males, right? In terms of empathy or creating that environment that's that's potentially more inclusive. You know, we've all read the research about what, right. what, what the genders really bring to the table. But I think what's important and I think what really helps just bring that gender equality and pushing that really further is having those open conversations, right? Just having an open conversation about being a female, like for me, being a female, being a working mother, being married, and really what that does to my career and what that does to my day-to-day life, you know, what the balance really is, the fact that I'm sorry, like I have to leave this meeting today because I have to take my kid to soccer practice. And before, maybe 10 years ago, people would have said, oh, I have to leave because I have to go to a doctor's appointment or I, I have another commitment. And they wouldn't say, that it was actually just taking their kid to soccer practice because they said about inferior or not allowed to be able to do things like that. And so I think being able to have sort of those open conversations with your coworkers, right? I intentionally now say, if I have something that is related to my daughter or my husband, I'll say, I, I gotta take my kid to soccer practice or I gotta pick her up today because my husband's done it the last week and it's my turn. And so I'm sorry, I just can't stay late, right? And I kind of just say the truth because I think having those open conversations and being able to speak the truth honestly helps other women or even other men that have similar struggles and really people have empathy for that. Because before, if I was always kind of hiding behind like, oh, I just have to go, I have another commitment at five and not saying what it was really about, I wasn't allowing those conversations to be open and to really flow in this environment. And I think in order to have sort of gender equality and have men and women be on the same playing field, you have to be willing to have those honest conversations about what it is that the women are really having to deal with outside of the workplace, right? I got to make dinner tonight. Like it's my, it's, it's me. I'm making dinner tonight, you know, and I got to go. And it's very hard to admit that. And it's very hard to just put that out in the open. But I think if, if people like me in, in leadership positions don't do that, then it doesn't really allow the person that works underneath me to, to have similar conversations, right? And they have to hide between having to take care of elderly parents or wh- whatever their personal struggle is, it'd be something that you have to hide behind. And I think being able to put that in the open really helps 
create that evil, equal playing field, right? And then if it's not equal, at least the male counterparts understand what the women are going through. Is there an aspect of you being South Asian that has influenced how you lead? Absolutely. I think, you know, part of my nurturing and inclusive nature really comes from my South Asian heritage. You know, I, I see my mom each day and they live in a small town now um, called Lubbock in Texas. And they there's a very small South Asian community there. But the first, you know, anytime somebody moves there, no matter what South Asian background they are, my mom will give them a call and be like, hi, I, I heard you moved to Lubbock. I love it. You guys want to come over to our house for dinner? And she has just made so many friends and so many connections about being like being that inclusive person, right? Trying to find that connection within another person. And I think just watching her do that for all these years and really understanding that that person to person connection is so important, if, regardless of what you do. I think I've really translated that into my job skill, right? I kind of talked about earlier about why I think they picked me. You know, it wasn't my technical smarts. It wasn't my brains. You know, it wasn't my hammering personality, which you'd expect most flight directors to be. I think it was really my personable connection making personality. And I think seeing that in my mother and seeing that in general in the South Asian culture of just trying to be inclusive, have the big parties, have the big families, you know, invite everybody. I, I don't even know you. You're my brother, sister's mother, but come over for dinner. You know, I think because of that, I have kind of translated that skill into my work. And I think that's what's really set me apart and really helped me in my career, to be honest, uh, making those connections. Because when something does happen, I'm able to call that person like they're my friend versus you know cold calling them if I didn't know them. Hmm. So building relationships and the ability to make relationships sounds like something that was a, served as a good differentiator for you in your career. Absolutely. So do you have aspirations for your daughter to follow in your footsteps? Honestly, no, because this wasn't ever, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think so. My husband and I always joke about, you know, what do we want her to be and, and what do we want to push? And I kind of go back to what my parents did for me, which was not push me, right? They always kind of said, we want you to be successful enough that you could pay your bills and, and do your, you know, live your life. But we don't care if you're an artist or a doctor or an engineer. I mean, we just want you to be happy. And I think that's the most important thing that I really want to push onto my daughter is that I just want her to be happy, right? She can do anything that she wants in this world as long as she can, you know, pay her own bills and be self-sustainable because you can't rely on anybody else to take care of you in this life. She can do anything else that she wants. You know, she can do anything. It, it, the, there's no reason for her to follow in my footsteps, though I will say that when she pretends to go to work, at home and gets her purse and her pretend laptop and I'm going to work mama. She's always going to NASA. So um, <laughs> I haven't pushed it. I think she has pushed it herself. I think it's either that or she wants to be a comedian. She's really working on her knock, knock joke repertoire. So, <laughs> so she's got a little bit of an artist in her from your mother. It sounds like. Yes, yeah, <laughs> wow. yeah. yeah. And my husband, my husband is, is really great and jovial. And I think she's really gotten that from him as well. So, so it's either, you know, she may be a doctor or she may, may be a comedian. We'll see. Either <laughs> NASA or, or a comedian, like I said. Right. What do you do to manage stress? Good question. My husband and I were just talking about this the other day because I had listened to a podcast about completing your stress cycle. And there are different ways in which people sort of complete their stress cycle. And for some people, it's say working out or some people it's eating a really great meal or having a glass of wine. Uh, for some people, it's just sleep. You know, the fact that they just need to go to sleep. So for me, 
completing my stress cycle and really managing stress outside of what I do at work, you know, like how do I bring it home and make sure that I'm not stressed at home is really completing my stress cycle, which for me is like eating something good. I always feel like, oh, I worked so hard. I worked, I worked overnight for the past week. I deserve that Starbucks on the way home, you know? And so I feel like that's my little, like, oh, I'm Starbucks on the way home and I feel better about what's happened to me. And then another thing for me is sleep because I'm one of those people that just needs eight to nine hours and I don't get eight to nine hours. I just don't. And so when everything is said and done, I, that, that night, I will be the person that goes to bed at 8 PM because that, that's not something that can happen for me regularly based on my job life and my family life. But I really am the person that just needs sleep. And so my husband will know that I'm just going to bed really early after everything said and done. That was, that was super stressful at work. In terms of managing stress at work itself, I think what's very important, especially in the role that I'm in, is showing, not trying to be overly stressed, to be honest, right? When something happens that's bad in mission control, if I, as a leader, end up having an elevated stress level or end up, you know, being very, doing a lot of arm movements and, and kind of like asking everybody to hurry up and do things, the entire team follows my lead. And then their stress also gets more elevated, even though, even though that doesn't help the situation. And so it's very important as a leader in mission control for me to sort of stay below the team in terms of calm and cadence and asking folks not to rush and to really look at things. You know, my natural personality and the way I talk is very animated and very, yeah, and fast, like I talk fast. And so in those moments, I, I really take a step back and really think about how the way that I'm presenting myself is going to be important to the team's overall stress level. And so stressful situations, I tend to talk slower. I tend to be more calm. I tend to sit down if I need to, so that I'm not, because a lot of times we stand, you know, in our, in our position. So I, I tend to sit down and tell people to take their time because it, it allows them to sort of lower their stress level, even though it's a very stressful moment, it yeah. allows them to take away the stress and really look at the root problem. But that's a really important facet of leadership, right? To manage your stress as a leader so that how you're feeling doesn't bleed into your team. Yeah, because in the end of the day in mission control, I, I need to get success, right? I need to make sure the crew is safe, that the vehicle's safe. And if people are overcome by emotions in that moment, that doesn't help anyone. So I really try to taper my emotions in, the, in those scenarios because we all know what's happened. We all know that it's stressful, that that's obvious, right? And so with me re really trying to limit the way that I express that, I think helps the team continue in a way that is more productive. Do you feel that's how you lead at home as well? Like off the work clock, is that how you lead? I think my, my husband will say yes, because he'll say yes in, this, in the sense that like I bring my mission control hat to home where I'm like telling everybody to do everything and like, we got to, we got to do this by this time. And we got 10 minutes and I need Jay and my daughter to put on her shoes and dad, you need to go grab the cooler. And, you know, like I'll start sort of directing and bossing, which is, you know, sadly, I think I get the bossy, the bossy term a lot because in my job as a flight director, like that is, I really am the bossy person. I'm the one that's really telling people and directing people uh, to do certain things. And so I, I absolutely think it translates to my home life. For sure, but I need to be mindful of it, to be honest, right? because because me and my husband are a partnership, and, I, and I'm not the boss at home, and so I do have to be mindful of it at home that 
And I think, you know, since Mima has been dating for so many years, we have kind of found our, our niches in terms of like, he's really good at this and he's going to be in charge of that. And I'm really good at this. And this is what I'm going to be in charge of. And we kind of stay in our own sandboxes to, to make sure that we don't trample each other. So one of the things you said earlier, you said that, you know, becoming a flight director in general is a lifetime. It's kind of it's a lifetime goal and, and well, you've achieved it. And in conversations with, with many individuals that have, have kind of reached their goal at a very kind of young time in their, early in their career, mm-hmm. you know, what's next? Like, what do you, what do you do now? I think that's a really good question because I don't think I personally have the answer to that. I wish I did. You know, I was just actually talking to my, another flight director yesterday about sort of the lifespan of a flight director and how, how many years they usually sort of stay in this role. There's currently a flight director in our office that's been here for over 20 years. So he's been a flight director for 20 years. And then I think at the low end, it may be like a 10-year, you know, a 10-year path. And so you have sort of a 10 to 20-year lifespan in the flight director office for multiple reasons, right? You are working crazy hours. We work overnights, weekends, holidays, consistently throughout the year to support the space program, as well as it's a very stressful job. I mean, the job stops we have astronauts on the space station right now that we need to care for and so even if you're not on console you're worried about the next thing or planning for the next thing and the stress level can can get to you right i mean it's kind of hard to consistently maintain a high level of stress in your life from work for 20 years or plus so there will be something next for me absolutely you know i'm not going to be like i said i mean i'm 37 36 turning 37 this year and so even if I do this for the next 10 years or, or say even 20 years, I mean, there's still some years left in terms of what I would like to put into the workforce. Um, but I have no idea. I have no idea where, where I'll end up. And I think similar to the fact that I didn't know I would end up here, you know, I think I'm really just going to have to be kind of pushed and where the leaves kind of fall with the wind over the next few years and what opportunities sort of fall on my lap or what opportunities I need to really reach for. We'll have to see what they are. Well, thank you so much, Pooja. Um, it was, I really appreciate you being so open and vulnerable to these questions I'm posing to you about, you know, how you personally manage yourself and then how you professionally do it as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me and Diane as well. Absolutely. It was so nice to have this conversation. I think I'm really impressed by the fact that these conversations are happening in the first place. And there are, there are people like you and Diane that are really pushing the boundaries and really asking these open open and honest questions, because I think really getting to hear the open and honest truth is so important um, to the generations that are now upcoming. To learn more about NASA and their space missions and programs, you can visit their website at www.nasa.gov. We hope you enjoy the stories on our podcast as much as we enjoy unveiling them. A lot of time and detailed editing goes into bringing these stories and the timing of our efforts couldn't be more critical to our community than now. A big thank you to our sponsor, Renica Digital. Renica Digital is a full service digital marketing boutique. They offer cloud, web, app, and social media services. If you are interested in serving as an ally to help us continue to bring the spotlight to the stories behind these amazing Asian American women trailblazers, please reach out to us for sponsorship and donation opportunities. Thanks for listening. Be safe and be well.